Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in light of who you are. Um, If we use the word great for you, Father, then then nothing else is. Because you are in a category by yourself in regards to your holiness, your majesty, your greatness, your eternality, your holiness. So Father, thanks for the opportunity to sing here this morning. We pray that your word would come this morning and that you would press us and mold us and shape us. And in all the shaping and molding that you do, Father, I pray that you would certainly form humility in us. That no matter what other attributes we might want to aspire to or to see in our lives, in light of who you are, if we don't have humility, then we're not being shaped by you. So please come and do that today. We commit this time to your hands. In your name I pray, amen. Amen, good morning. Good to see you guys. Romans chapter 9 is where we will be. I will be in the first nine verses of Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is pretty thick. Uh, It is some thick woods that we are going to walk through over the next couple months, but... uh, but it is glorious, and there, is, there are things that are at the very bottom of our theology and our worship of God and of who he is, and I pray that the Lord would help us to grasp it over the next several months as we walk through it. Let me read this, Romans 9, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. All who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Pray with me one more time. God, thanks for today. Bless your word. Watch over to perform it. Give me a pure mind and 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 passion in my heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So last week, um, we finished up Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, many people would point to the end of Romans chapter 8 as kind of the high point of the book of Romans. Uh, It is a very grand and glorious 
crescendo uh, that Paul hits on as he wraps up uh, that chapter, that portion of, of the letter. Um, as we said, you know, that there is nothing, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I could use this metaphor, maybe, um, it says, though Paul takes us to the very top of the Empire State Building, and he shows us this amazing view, this, this amazing panorama of all of God's glory and what he's doing throughout history, and that is, he said earlier in the chapter, that he's literally working all things, all things, everything. He's working everything together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I mean, there's, there's no more glorious truth, there's no more grander view that we could possibly see. And along the way, all the way through the book and even through Romans chapter 8, Paul has been showing us as he took us to the top of the Empire State Building, um, he's shown us how the building holds together and how it works and why this is true, that the Holy Spirit is in us and the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, Christ is interceding for us, that we've now become uh, God's children, though we were once his enemies that we've been adopted into his family. But now, from taking us from those heights, though, and looking at all that and as glorious as it is, um, there might be a question as we stand on the top of this, this very high skyscraper, so to speak, and that is, yeah, but is this building secure? Is it really going to stand? What about a storm? What about when the enemy assails us? What about when things are, are, are launched at us? What about when there's earthquakes and, and things are shaken? Is it safe to be here? Can we really trust that this is true? And so Paul says, yeah, that's a legitimate question. And so now kind of what he does in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and, and please hear me here in the importance of this, is because it might not seem as glorious. We like the view of Romans chapter 8, and listen, we can cling to that, and in a sense, this is where the metaphor breaks down. We can always behold that because it's always true, and we should always keep that at the forefront of our hearts and minds and what we believe, but what happens in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is Paul takes us down into the basement of the Empire State Building. He takes us down into the foundation, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the Empire State Building actually goes down several stories below ground, just like it goes several stories above ground, and there are over, I think, I think there's like 210 massive pillars in the basement of the Empire State Building that uphold everything that is seen and allows you to go to those grand heights. And so Paul is going to take us down into the basement, not just to give us a tour and to waste our time, but to show us that all that he's talked about, and especially what he talked about last week in Romans chapter 8, and that nothing can separate us from his love, and that those who are saved are truly safe, that we are truly secure in Christ, he's going to take us into the basement and show us that this, this glorious building, these heights, we don't have to be afraid. It's going to stand um, because of God's absolute sovereignty, which is at the bottom and which is the bedrock of everything that he said up up until this point. Um, Romans 9, 10, and 11, let me also say this, is a, is a portion of the book of Romans that many Christians are, we're very apt to just skip over. We're very given to just, um, to just kind of jump from the end of Romans 8, which sounds, again, very beautiful because in its beautiful language, it's poetic language, and yet it's absolutely theologically precise and accurate language. He's not lying, but we're tempted to just jump from there to the beginning of Romans chapter 12, where he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Many people know that verse as well. And somewhere between Roman and, and, and Romans 9, 10, and 11, we just kind of, I'm not sure what he's talking about, about here. Listen, you've heard me say this a thousand times, but if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get diamonds. 
But in the digging, we got to get dirty. And we have to go down and we have to engage our minds, our heart, and in prayer, asking God to help us understand what Paul has written here in his inspired word, in God's inspired word, um, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the primary question, it's a very precise, important theological question that, again, many of us, especially in our American minds and American Western context, are, are apt to just kind of gloss over, is the question on the table primarily is, yeah, but Paul, what about the nation of Israel? And th- the reason this ties in is because what Paul has just said in Romans chapter 8 about us being adopted, and, and if you remember, us being chosen. That he, says, he says, one of the things he says, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And those that he's foreknown, he's predestined and, and adopted. That is all language that was used of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And so if you have a sharp theological mind and you're tracking with what Paul is saying, one of the arguments that his opponents would make is, Paul, how can you possibly say that that is true, that nothing can separate us from God's love as his chosen people, when the nation of Israel, in large part, has rejected the Messiah? I thought they were God's chosen people. Has God's wor- hasn't God's word failed to them? And Paul's answer is no. It has not. But do you understand the massive theological implications here that, that are for us. And again, Paul, Paul cares for us that we would truly understand and embrace and believe the security that we have in Christ even more than we do. And that's why he takes, us, takes the time to take us down into the basement, down into the foundation, down into all the pillars that uphold everything that we hold as precious. And he shows us that God's will will stand because at the bottom of everything is God's sovereignty. It's his sovereignty, and nothing, nothing can stop that. So that's kind of where we're going, not just this morning, but over the next several months, honestly, um, through Romans 9, 10, and 11. This morning, it breaks down pretty nicely into three little sections that will, that will take us down the path that I've, I've just kind of described. Um, and that is, you see, Paul's passion, Israel's privilege, and God's promise. Paul's passion, Israel's privilege, and God's promise, okay? And so it's, it's a winding road, <clears throat> but ultimately what Paul is after here is that, again, we would have absolute security that God's word will not fail. It never has, and it never will, okay? So first of all, let me try to show you how this works together as we go through it. Paul's passion. Paul here... <sighs> He's not just waxing eloquent. He's not just overstating things with hyperbole just to be extreme and just to, um, you know, get some clicks on his Facebook page. He, he is speaking out of a sincere heart, and he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Why does he say I'm not lying? Because you might be tempted to think that he is lying with what he's about to say. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He calls God to witness to that, that this is the truth. And he says this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For who? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he goes on to describe who he's talking about, the nation of Israel. That Paul himself was a natural-born Israelite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He describes this in Philippians chapter 2, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, Paul was a Jewish person. However, in large part, it was the Jewish people that were adamantly against Paul and against his message. Again, you will see Paul held, as you read through the book of Acts, in Roman prisons and waiting on trial at time to eventually to even appeal to Caesar and in Caesar's court. But for the most part, the people that put him there were the Jews. They were adamantly opposed to his message, okay? Because his message was that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who they were looking for but did not recognize. And his message to them was very straightforward. It was that they played a role in crucifying him, but in crucifying him, God raised him from the dead. And he, and he offered them the hope of salvation that we've talked about, that's found in Christ Jesus. But you see, Paul, here, that though these people are his enemies, that he has truly this great sorrow, as he puts it, and an unceasing anguish in his heart. And I, I think this is so important. Um, and I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this and to put this here, especially as we get into some very deep theological waters over the next couple of weeks as we go through this portion of Scripture. Is because, again, you guys hear me say this all the time, theology matters, but you, you see here that it's not just theology for theology's sake. Is that Paul has a truly broken evangelistic heart that bleeds for the lost. And he wants them to understand the hope that is offered to them in Christ Jesus, though they have in large part rejected it. And I think that it's, it's important that it's here for all the readers of the book of Romans, but, but especially for us, for us this morning, is that we understand that, that, again, all that we teach and all that we talk about, it's, it's not just for us being able to put together a nice little doctrinal system. It's that we would have hearts that would bleed for the lost, folks is that in everything that we do, if mission is not at the end of everything that we do, then I don't know what we're doing. Right? Like, why do we gather here every Sunday? Why do we open God's Word? Why do we train people? Why do we try to make disciples that make disciples? Why do we send people out? Why do we support missionaries? Why do we go to the ends of the earth? Why do we share our faith? Because at the end of everything that we believe is a God who came to seek and save the lost. And we are his body, his family, and he now wants to use us to take this, this, this mission out. Um, and again, just a couple things here about, about the nature of, of, of Paul's heart. Uh, and that is primarily here, not even just his evangelistic method, but just his, his desire, his demeanor for the lost that he has this great sorrow and this, and this unceasing anguish. Um, one of my favorite quotes, I've, I don't think I've shared this with you in a while, but I know I've shared it in the past. <coughs> I feel like maybe it's been several years, but, <coughs> excuse me. One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named E.M. Bounds that is speaking in regards to evangelistic uh, methods to try to reach people. He says, men are constantly looking for methods, but God is constantly looking for men looking for men that are brokenhearted for the lost. 
a gospel-centered church um, must be a broken-hearted church. Not a church that's broken-hearted in regards to being hopeless or in despair, but a church that is truly broken-hearted for those who do not know Christ. And as Paul gives us the example here this morning, even those who do not know Christ and are our enemies that hate us, that do not like us, does our heart break for them? And the very pressing, prominent question on the table this morning, or I guess kind of statement is this, is that if our heart doesn't break for the lost, and not just for the lost, but even for our enemies then I would like to submit that I don't think we are a gospel-centered people or a gospel-centered church. Because the way that you get this type of heart for the lost is by having a deep understanding and revelation of God's grace in your own life and what God has done for you. Again, you, you, you think about Paul's life. He was a man who, you know, in Acts chapter 8 and 9, he he is persecuting the church. He is an enemy of the church. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest people that belong to the way, to the church. And God, in his sovereign grace and mercy, met him and blinded him for a time and saved him by his grace. And is this message of, of the gospel, I think, in Paul's own life that, 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 that breaks his heart. And the re- what I'm trying to press at here is that sometimes I think in the church what we do is in regards to, you know, getting a heart for the lost, that's probably something that you've maybe heard a preacher say before. Is that, come on, folks, we should, we should have a heart for the lost. But then usually what we do is, and again, and there's a, and there's a place for this. We need to be aware of, of needs in the world. But usually what happens is, like, we talk about how bad some people have it. Or how much poverty there is in a certain place. Or about how there's no gospel witness here. And again, all those things are true and all those things should break our heart. But what I want to say to us is, is that the primary way that we have a broken heart that bleeds for the lost, a heart that where we can truly say with Paul, with sincerity, is full of great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the lost, is by meditating upon the fact that if it was not for the grace of God in our lives, we too would be lost. That's where a heart for the lost comes from, is a deep understanding of the grace of God in our own lives. It's not about, you know, worldly methods and slick marketing campaigns, but it's about understanding that if God would not have gone out of his way to save each one of us that knows him as Savior, then we would have, then we would have absolutely no hope. This is by far and away the most important um, characteristic that uh, I know that I want to see in people that aspire to serve the Lord, um, perhaps in vocational ministry or full-time ministry. Again, I think it should be the heart of every Christian, but you know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And he's speaking here of, of, of people in God's house. Is that he, and he goes on to say that we should be those that want to cleanse ourselves, 
and be a vessel that's used for honorable use. If each one of us aspires to be a disciple that is a vessel in the Lord's house to be used for honorable use, I don't care about your, your talent, your ability, you know, whatever else. Do you have a broken heart for the lost? And do you understand the depths of God's grace in your own life? Um, there was a man named John Knox who at one point, it's kind of a long sweeping story, he was a well-known reformer um, in Scotland back in the 1500s. At one point he was a galley slave when the French were ruling, were ruling Scotland and out on a ship. And, uh, but, but he prayed one time, kind of this, this famous, this well-known prayer that he just continued to pray for Scotland throughout his days. He said, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland or or I die. And I'm telling you folks, what's going to reach the world, Holmes County, America, as frustrated as many of us are with the way many things are going in our country, can I tell you a little secret? It's not going to be through politics. It's not going to be through marketing and campaigns or new methods that the world finds attractive and somehow bridges the gap. It's going to be through God's people being absolutely brokenhearted and full of anguish and sorrow for the lost. Amen? And I pray that God would cultivate that heart in us. Um, and I believe that he has been, as, we look, as we've been looking at the depths of his grace and of his mercy. Um, here in these chapters in Romans up until this point. So Paul's great passion for the lost is on display here. And now he's going to go on and he's going to describe um, the nature of these people, the Israelites, the Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he puts it here in in verse 4. And everything that he's going to describe is describing Israel's great privilege that they had because of God's grace in all the ways that God had worked in their lives as a nation throughout their history. Let's run through it quickly. Excuse me, and I'll break it down. Verse 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Very quickly, let's go through each one of those again. The adoption. Back in Exodus chapter 4, um, uh, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back into Egypt, see that you do this before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So you remember the ten plagues in Egypt. And the last of those plagues was that the firstborn son in every house was going to die. That was a very, um, as, as harsh as you may think that, that may be, God in his sovereign justice um, counted that as a fitting punishment to the crime of Pharaoh holding on to his firstborn son, who was Israel. Okay, so when he says adoption here, this is language that is used in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel 
um, in regards to being God's son. Jeremiah 31, 9 says, With weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, says the Lord, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Next, he not only speaks of adoption, but the glory. What is this glory that he spoke of, that God, Almighty God, existed in all of eternity past before anything was, God was always there. He is the great I am. He is as big as eternity in every direction forever. Before anything existed, he was there, and he is glorious. And when he came into real time space history, thousands of years ago with the nation of Israel, he came in glory. In Exodus chapter 29, um, it says that there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Speaking of coming to the temple, to the tabernacle. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also with his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people and of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt to dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. In Exodus chapter 40, it says, then the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is the cloud of the Lord's glory. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That God, almighty, eternal God, manifested his presence. The Shekinah glory shining so bright that it would kill people and so he would come in the very nature of who he is in our world when he shows up is that he's bright and it's more than we can handle. So though it was bright, he also kind of veiled it in a cloud so that we wouldn't die. You remember when, when Moses, even Moses, the great Moses, says to God, show me your glory and God's like, ah, well, I, you know, I can show you where I just was because if you see me, you'll die. This is the glory that, that came to the people, the covenants. There are many covenants. Again, this is a, Paul is getting us here to think massively, kind of sweeping across all the Old Testament. Um, and so again, if it, you have to have somewhat of a theological, biblical foundation to understand some of these things, but just very quickly, is that God, when he works with his people, he works in covenants. There are primarily two covenants that, over the course of the whole Bible, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but the Old Covenant was first really initiated with the, what's called the Abrahamic Covenant, that when God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he makes this covenant with him and he basically says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great so that you can be a blessing to the people. And then that covenant is, it is renewed and elaborated and expanded upon throughout history with the Mosaic covenant, that's his covenant with Moses, with the Davidic covenant, that's God's covenant with David. It's not really a different covenant. Again, it's just, it's renewed and elaborated upon about how God is going to come and he's going to work um, uh, in the lives of the nation of Israel and now today the church um, for our redemption. The giving of the law that God showed up and he gives this unique revelation literally inspired by God, written with the finger of God on stone tablets as to what pleases him and as to how they are to worship him. No other nation got that, but the nation of Israel did. And it was a privilege. He says, um, not only the giving of the law, but the worship. That all the prescribed ways in which his people, the nation of Israel, was to worship him. That was all prescribed for him, for them, in the word. And they had this privilege of being a people that were allowed to worship. It's what they were created to do. It's what all of humankind was created to do. And yet it was brought to the nation of Israel. Great privilege. The promises 
All the promises find their yes in Christ Jesus. This is where Paul's going here um, when he points to the Christ here in just a second. But all the promises of God that he gave to his people, that he was going to deliver them and wanted to bless them um, and was going to send uh, this Messiah, this Christ, to make things right, to, to forgive them of their sins, to give, eventually give them a new heart. He speaks of the, patri- the patriarchs here. But again, this, this, great, this great lineage, this great heritage that they had, that though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many others, all these men, they were deeply flawed men, but they were also men who had the privilege of meeting with God face to face, and, and this, is, this, was their, this was the nation of Israel, this was their heritage, this was their inheritance, this is where they come from is that there was reason to boast in it because God had been so gracious to them. And then he, he kind of wraps it all up and he says, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. John Calvin put it like this. He said, if God honored the whole human race when he connected himself with it by sharing our nature, much more did he honor the Jews with whom he desired to have a close bond of affinity. That when Christ came, yes, he came as a human in human form, but he came as a Jewish human. Again, great privilege, great honor in this Christ who is God, blessed forever. Amen. It's kind of, it's kind of like this, okay? You're like, why, does, why is all this here? What's, what's, what's Paul's point? Well, this is part, it's part of Paul's heartbreak, okay? Is that the greater the privilege, the more tragic it seems when there is a failure to reach one's destiny or purpose. Okay, so if I could just illustrate that for a second, um, Every now and then, I mean, basketball is my favorite sport, but like, what you, you, but you hear of athletes, and in my case, usually more times than not, basketball, you see some sort of prospect that, you know, colleges and NBA scouts are looking at anymore, even in like the sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and, you know, these guys just have unbelievable athletic ability, and they can jump out of the gym and dunk and do all this, all this crazy stuff, and actually, there's just another guy here recently that um, one of my boys was showing to me, you know, on YouTube the other day or whatever, and I mean, just, I mean, can just spin around 20 times, dunk the ball. I mean, it's just crazy. And, um, and now all of a sudden it seems like he's gotten himself in some legal trouble, and you don't know what's going to happen. Or maybe you hear of somebody with all this great athletic potential, and, uh, and then they have some sort of a career-ending injury. And, and what's tragic about it is that you never, like, with the ability, the privilege, just the natural-born ability and talent that they have, um, it's tragic because you, you never see them fully fulfill, like, everything that it seems obvious that they were intended to do, right? Like, with all that great athletic ability, what, man, you just want to see them, you want to see them make, make the most of it or, or, or display it. You take that and you compare it with someone like me. Like, I don't think anyone here this morning is going, man, Eric, if only you'd made it to the NBA. Man, I bet that would have been awesome to watch. Nobody's ever thought that. Ever. In all of your short stockiness and inability to jump. Like, no one's ever, no one's ever thought that. And, and, and so that's the idea here is like all this privilege that the nation of Israel had. And yet the Messiah comes, the one to whom everything was building and building towards and culminating in. And yet they rejected him, and Paul's heart, Paul's heart breaks for them. And brothers and sisters, it's you, you gotta understand this. 
because if I can just run back through it again really quickly, and I'll, I'll try to go fast here, is in understanding the privilege of the nation of Israel, we should understand the privilege that every single one of us has this morning in what we have been given. Is that we too have been given, we just looked at this in Romans chapter 8, an adoption as sons. That he has put the spirit of adoption in us by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That the glory that came down, the bright Shekinah glory, yet veiled in a cloud when it filled the tabernacle, wind and fire on the day of Pentecost. Woof, here comes the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for everyone who believes. Not just that his glory is going to fill the temple, but he's going to fill the temple of our bodies. And it's true for every one of us who has believed in Christ. Of the covenants, not just the Abrahamic or the Mosaic or the Davidic covenant, but the new covenant brought about by a better mediator, Jesus, who is the Christ. The problem with all these old covenants in the Old Testament is that the mediator of the covenant, whether it was Abraham or, or Moses or David or some or one of the high priests or whatever it is, they kept dying. And so the covenant would fail, it would fall off, people kept sinning. But the mediator of our covenant, Jesus Christ, went through death, now lives forever to see us through to the end. We touched on that last week in regards to his, his intercession. The giving of the law. Brothers and sisters, the law has been written not by the finger of God, but by the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. That part of your salvation is that it's no longer just a command from without on a tablet of stone, but if you've truly been saved, the Holy Spirit comes into you, and now you have an urge from within to serve him. Is it imperfect? Yes. Do we still sin? Sin? Yes. Do we still have a sin nature, a flesh that we wage war against? Yes. But now you actually have love in your heart for that which is truly lovely, which you did not love before, and that's the nature of our sin, is that we did not love God, but we were by nature um, opposed to him. But the law has now been written on our hearts. The worship, not just in the temple. I mean, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, you know, and she tries to get into it with him and kind of distract him from her sin. And, you know, oh, you know, you Jews say we should, you know, worship in Jerusalem, but we say it should be over here on this mountain. And Jesus goes, girl, you don't know what's going on. It's not about any of that. He's like, the true worshipers are those who are going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Such worshipers the Father seeks. And we are those who have the opportunity to worship him in spirit and in truth. His spirit lives in us. His spirit lives in our spirit. We are perfectly fitted to do what he's created us to do, which is to worship him. And we have the truth of his word revealed in the scriptures and manifested in the person of Jesus Christ that we could worship him rightly. The promises, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, all the promises find their yes in Christ Jesus. All the promises point to him. All the promises are fulfilled in Christ. What have we been learning as we've gone through the book of Romans? We are hidden in the one in whom all the promises are fulfilled. All the promises find their yes in Christ. We are with Christ. We are united with him. All the promises are ours in Christ Jesus. The, the, the patriarchs, the lineage is that, man, we're, we're, we come from a people that, we, you know, we might not be that proud of our heritage. Maybe we are, maybe we are. And if we are proud of it, our heritage according to the flesh, we probably shouldn't be. <laughs> but, you know, in regards to the patriarchs here, like, Jesus is the better of each one of them. 
Jesus is the better Isaac. You know, he didn't, like Isaac went up the mountain with his father, was bound and was going to give up his life. God was doing this to test him. You guys know the story. But he stops him. Why? Because, because sacrificing Isaac wouldn't have done anything. Because he was a sinner like everybody else. Jesus is the better Isaac. Jesus is the better Abraham. Can I share one with you? This might be kind of a little unique, kind of, kind of cryptic one. But this one has just kind of been rolling around in my heart and mind all week this week as I've just been thinking about these stories of the patriarchs and how Jesus is the better, the true fulfillment of all those shadows in the Old Testament. But remember in the story of Abraham, when God calls him, the first place that he goes is he goes down into Egypt to avoid a famine. You remember that story? And do you remember what he does? <laughs> it's not his best moment as a husband. He, he goes to Pharaoh and he lies about Sarah being his wife, and he says that it's his sister. And he does it to just save his own hide, so to speak. He, um, Abraham tells Pharaoh that she's his sister so that Pharaoh won't take his life. And Jesus, as the better Abraham, comes, and we were in bondage to Pharaoh, in sin. And he doesn't lie about us and give us up. He gives up his own life. To, to deliver us from Pharaoh. Abraham tried to use his wife to save his life. Jesus gives up his life to save his wife, his bride. I hope you appreciate that that rhymed. Um, like he, you, you see, and, and again, this is just like, he, he's the better Jacob, he's the better Moses, he's the better Joshua that takes us into the promised land. Not where Jericho is, but the promised land of the Spirit where, yeah, we got to fight battles. And there's giants, and there's armies, and there's strongholds. But he comes to lead us in victory in those things, you see. So the patriarchs, again, all these things are fulfilled in Christ. And, and this Christ came to a people, to Gentiles, which is all of us who are not Jewish. Because he came to seek and save that which is lost. And as we think about Israel's privilege, just, which is what Paul's doing here, and again, there's theological reasons for it as he takes us through this, but brother, sister, do not forget the privilege that you and I have in Christ Jesus. Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy to the nation of Israel, though they were a chosen people, he said, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. Well, then why did he do it? He just says, well, it was because the Lord loves you. And I don't know if you hear that again. Let me read that again. This is Deuteronomy 7. Listen closely. 7 and 8. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord your God set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers. Now, I don't know if you caught that or not, but it's not because you were so awesome that the Lord loves you. Well, why does he love me then? It's just because he loves you. That's literally what he says. Yeah, but why did he love me? It's just because he loves you. Yeah, but why did he love me? Just because he loves you. We talked about that last week. That's why. 
That's his grace. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about having a revelation of God's grace in our life that will break our hearts for the lost. Because it is only because of the grace of God that we have any, any hope at all. And so, Paul's passion, Israel's privilege, you can see how, they're, how they come together and that Paul's heart is broken for them because of this, the, the, the tragedy of them rejecting the Messiah. Um, uh, again, not wholesale because Paul himself was a Jew, but yet in large measure had rejected him. And then lastly, how God's promise fits with all this. And again, this is very theologically important, so let, but let me just tell you, verse 6 of chapter 9 is like the thesis of this entire section of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Okay? And I've already said this a little bit at the outset, but just so you see it stated straightforward here. Verse 6, Paul then says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay? Now again, Make sure you're with me. Why would he say that? The reason he says it is not as though the word of God has failed is because it seems like the word of God has failed. Why does it seem like the word of God has failed? Because the nation of Israel, who was God's chosen people, in large measure had rejected their Messiah. And so the question is asked, well, is God still going to stick with him? And here's how Paul now begins to answer the question. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And here's his, first, here's his first part of the answer. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, I said this was going to be kind of some tough sledding, some bumpy, thick theological stuff. You can see it right there in that phrase, can't you? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul, what in the world do you mean? He's going to go on and he's going to explain what he means by this. Okay? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. That little phrase, through Isaac your offspring shall be named, is a quote from Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. This was after... This was after Abraham and Sarah, who were barren, could not have kids. You remember, they try to get it done in their own power. And so Abraham goes into Hagar. Sarah's maidservant has a kid with her. She has Ishmael. Okay, And, and Abraham begs God for Ishmael to kind of carry on the inheritance or to receive the blessing. And God says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work. He says, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Then Paul goes on here, verse 8, he says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. So you've got these two categories, okay? You've got children of the flesh, of whom we are all children of the flesh. We're born naturally between a man and a woman, as were, even was Isaac and Ishmael, all of them. But then you also have some children of the flesh who are children of the promise, and he says, it is not through children of the flesh, i.e. Ishmael, that your offspring will be named, but it is through children of the promise that they will be counted as offspring. And then he's going to quote again in verse 9 um, from Genesis chapter 18. He says, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I shall return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now here's what we have to define, okay? Is what does he mean by children of the flesh and children of the promise? Children of the promise are those to whom God's supernatural work from his sovereign grace 
comes, and they are the ones, because of his choice, that receive the inheritance. That's who they are. Was Isaac born in the natural way, meaning did Abraham and Sarah have intimate relations? Yes, but she was also barren. It was a supernatural work of God that brought him about. Children of the promise are those who have been born according to the supernatural work of God. Now, again, Paul is going to take this idea and he's going to tease it out all through the next several chapters. But let me just stop here and make sure we're, we're on the same page. Brother, sister, there is not one person in this room, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that has not been born again apart from the supernatural work of God. It is the only way it works. Salvation is supernatural. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is because you, too, in his grace, are a child of the promise. This is the, this is the point that Paul is going to hammer home. And let me just say, because if you're understanding it rightly it probably is rubbing you a little bit wrong right now. And let me just say that, just wait till next week, because you ain't seen nothing yet. Paul is going to hammer away that the people that God the Father has chosen as a bride for his son, that those people are the bride of his son, the church, from Jew, Gentile, all people throughout history that have trusted in the Messiah. Those people are the ones that the Father has chosen. And everything in us, just feel it and be honest about it, everything in us just rages against that. We rage against that our will is not ultimate. We rage against the fact that our autonomy is not at the bottom of everything. But brother or sister, it isn't. And the idea of complete human autonomy and freedom, I'll tell you something, it is a lie that the Bible never speaks of. You and I have great autonomy, we have great freedom, but it is not as free as God. And in regards to comparing our freedom, what we define as freedom, and what is freedom for, hum for humans, compared to the freedom of God, God is the only being in the universe that is truly free. The only one. The rest of us, as Jesus said very straightforwardly in John chapter 6, and the Bible says in many other places, we are born as slaves of sin. We're enslaved. That's the level of our freedom. God, in his mercy and grace, according to his promise, just like he came to Abraham and Sarah in all of their inability and in all of their barrenness, he comes in his grace with his promise. And he says, I will bring life here. And that's the way it works. Now, it is not lost on me at all that, believe me, <laughs> it's not lost on me. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people over the years about this idea. Um, and that's why I say when natural man rages against it, I remember the very first time, um, not that this really matters, again, the word, of the, God, the word of God is the only thing that matters in what the Bible says, and I'm going to try to do my best just to make it plain as to what it says. But do you guys remember the Berlin House restaurant? 
Anybody remember the Berlin House back, way back in the day? It was right uh, where that little antique mall is is now um, in Berlin, or that big antique mall, I should say. Anyway, I remember the very first time I was driving with a guy, and we were right there by the Berlin House restaurant when it was still standing. And the very first time I ever even began to, I, I, I ever even heard as a new, as a someone who's really trying to follow Christ as a new believer disciple. This idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and how God's sovereignty is ultimate. And God working in our life to set us free and that our will is truly bound apart from the working of his grace in our lives. And the first time, again, we're just talking about these ideas right there by the Berlin House restaurant. Never forget where I was. And the first thing out of my mouth when I heard this was, I said, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. So that's literally what I said. I said, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I say that because you might also think that it is the stupidest thing that you've ever heard in your life. But I'm, and again, I don't want you to change anything based on Eric Miller's testimony. I want you to accept it based on the word of God. But I'm telling you, the word of God has hammered away at me year after year, and I am fully convinced that this is absolutely true. And we've said earlier in the book of Romans that there are things in the book of Romans that are difficult to understand. But this is one of those things in the book of Romans that's difficult to understand, not because, um, or difficult to accept, I should say, not because it's hard to understand, but because it's so plain. It's so plain. Our sin and our depravity run far deeper than any of us realize. And it is only because of the free, unmerited, sovereign grace of God that any of us is in Christ if we know him as Savior. And I'll tell you that this, this sovereign grace of God, that he worked where he when someone is born again, it is a miracle that he does, just like it was a miracle when, uh, when Isaac was born to Baron, Abraham, and Sarah. Here's the, here's the, the conundrum or the, um, the place, right, where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility meet. And that is that if you are here this morning and you do not know where you would spend eternity and you do not know if you were to die today whether you would go to heaven or to hell. Here's the good news of the gospel, and it's right where heaven and earth meet. And I don't understand it. I can't, full, I can't fully explain it. But here's what I know that the Bible also teaches. Is that if you, right where you sit, will acknowledge that you have sinned before an almighty holy God, and that your punishment is that you deserve from him is just. That it's not just because he's angry or cranky, but that you deserve punishment. If you acknowledge that, and if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and believe that the death that he died on the cross and the wrath that he bore is the wrath that you deserved, and you cry out to him for mercy and call upon him to save you, on the authority of the word of God, brother, sister, he will save you. He will save you. 
all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is the hope of the gospel. It's the promise of salvation. Um, And at the bottom of everything that we rejoice in and hold to be precious is God's sovereign working in the lives of barren people for his glory. I gotta, I gotta stop. Worship team, come up. And we'll close with just a couple real practical things. Number one, I just want to ask you, Christian, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior if you've been born again by the Spirit of God. Is there someone in your life today, in this season, that is very difficult to love? Someone that is against you, just like the Jews were against Paul, just like they adamantly opposed him. Is there someone that's difficult for you to love? I want to tell you something. You cannot work up love in your heart just from yourself. I want you to think again about God's grace in your own life and about how he saved you. Try to remember what it was like to be lost, blind, lame, and dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember how he saved you. Remember how he was at work to draw you to himself. Again, as we talked about Israel's privilege, don't forget your own privilege. Peter, the apostle Peter, in his letter to the church and in trying to shepherd them well, He's speaking to these New Testament, New Covenant believers, and he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, the Old Testament, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And he says, it was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look? Is it the privilege that we have in the gospel that we live on this side of the cross in history, that the Messiah has come, that the Spirit has been poured out, that the gospel has come to us Gentiles who were once far off? Brother, sister, do not let that be lost on you. It is all because of the working of, the working of his grace. Bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Father, I pray, Lord, um, as we stand and sing, as we continue over the next several weeks to work our way through these chapters, I pray, Father, that your word would come like a hammer and chip away the parts of us that are resistant to your absolute sovereignty in all things, including salvation. I pray that your word would press on us and mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. I pray, Lord, that your word would break our hearts for a lost and dying world that does not know you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to say with Paul with sincerity that we too would have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts and that, Lord, you would use that brokenness Use it to fuel the mission that you've given us. We need you. We love you. 
We thank you for the many ways that you are at work in and around and through us. We pray that you would have your way in our lives and in our church. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.